Our, uh, our sermon text this morning is in Colossians chapter 2. You can see it right there printed in your bulletin as we continue in our series through this letter. And our reading this morning is Colossians 2, uh, beginning at verse 6 through verse 15. So again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Uh, let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Therefore as, you are, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Did everyone hear that music? That was me, actually. I just turned it off. At least it was, it was like a nice kind of like, it kind of fit the reading of scripture. I was thinking of all of the music that could have been playing. Uh, that wasn't too bad, was it? Oh, man. Dodged a bullet on that one. Right at the beginning of our passage, so, so look at uh, Colossians 2, verse 6. Right at the beginning of our passage, we have this exhortation which, which functions as, as kind of the heart of the letter. All right, uh, And what I mean by that is for the past few weeks, we've been uh, looking and meditating at these glorious realities of who Jesus is. And so what we often will say is uh, so much of, of, in the New Testament, we have the indicative and then the imperative. And the indicative means those things as they are, the state of reality. And from that reality or from the state of things, the imperative is what we are to do. And I think that's the shift we have in Colossians 2 verse 6, is out of the sufficiency and supremacy of of Jesus, those themes woven throughout this letter, Paul then begins to turn and he begins to exhort. He begins to tell us how to live in light of this. So in 2.6, he says, therefore, right, based on all of those things that have come before from the last few weeks, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, received here isn't about receiving Jesus into your heart as Lord, or at least it's not entirely about that. I don't think that's the worst idea. I think that's that's okay. But this is about you heard Christ proclaimed to you as Lord, and you received that word, meaning you believed it. You put your faith in Christ as Lord. You took that word to be true for you. And so Paul says, live as if that were true. Live as if the stakes were as high as the gospel says they are. Live as if Jesus were as sufficient and great as you say you believe. Do so rooted, built up, and established. 
rooted. That's a tree metaphor, right? Trees need to be rooted into the ground, built up and established are building metaphors. And I couldn't help but think of the images coming out from Hurricane Ian this past week where it really speaks to this idea of what it means to be stable and secure. You can think of pictures coming out of Florida or the Carolinas or even in islands like Cuba, and they all have these tall palm trees, right? And the, and the palm branches wave and, and go according to the wind violently, but of course the trees are, are relatively stable and secure. They don't move, do they? Or think about images coming out of, of Florida where you have these, these buildings, right? And, and they're established. Wind and, and rain is not going to move those, those buildings, uh, the only way you even know there is a storm is because the clouds are dark and because the palm branches are whipping and there are no people in the frames, but otherwise the buildings are secure. Okay, these are helpful pictures of what Paul is getting at. These are fruitful, visual metaphors of the Christian life. And so Paul in our passage this morning is going to begin unpacking when the storms come, when we experience the wind that threatens to carry us away, what does it look like to be deeply rooted? What does it look like to be established and secure? Right? Think of anchoring a bookshelf to a wall. You don't have to anchor it. That's a terrible idea. You should anchor your bookshelves. You could anchor it to drywall. That doesn't really do anything, does it? Or you can anchor it into something that's stable and secure, like a wood stud. I think you could really just flesh out this analogy of what it looks like to be a Christian, right? So often we can anchor our lives to just foolish things that, it, that just, they, don't, they don't offer any kind of stability or we can secure our lives. We can anchor ourselves in Christ. So this is a warning for the church. You know, of course, the unbelieving world lives unrooted lives. I think that's true. I think so much of our society, uh, it holds to these principles that really are like almost elevating trees that have no root, Right? You keep unpacking the philosophy or you unpack the reasons to hold the, the, the beliefs that so much of our broader culture holds to you. There's, just, there's no foundation. The roots don't go deep into the ground. Um, but again, we would expect that of the unbelieving world. But yet, what about the church? Too often our roots are so shallow. And instead of our lives being secure and established in the rock that is Christ, we're vulnerable and we're fragile. And so this, this is Paul's exhortation, right, that we want to unpack. And, and the reminder that we have this morning in this passage that we just read is that our security and our foundation and our footing arises out of this in Christ reality that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. All right, so what does this look like to be rooted and established and secure? That's the question. What does it look like to do those kinds of things? And here's what Paul says as we go through our, our text this morning. Uh, Paul says, you have been filled in him. That's the first place we start when we think about being established in Christ. You've been filled in him. Secondly, you've been sealed in him. So we have to unpack this discussion of circumcision and baptism. You have been sealed in him. And then finally, you have been secured in him. He just comes back one more time to secure us in the truths of the gospel. All right, so first of all, uh, Paul will argue here, right, establishing us, rooting us in Christ, that you have been filled with him. From the very beginning of the sermon series, I've been alluding to this, this threat of false teaching and false belief that was around the church in, in Colossae that threatened the well-being of the Colossian Christians. And then this week and next week, we, we start to see explicitly what that false teaching was. So in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul warns, see to it. 
He's really saying, look out, watch out, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, so we have this threat, this philosophy, this empty deceit. Now, what does that mean? Are we to avoid all philosophy, right? Well, philosophy just means literally love of wisdom. So all those philosophy 101 classes that maybe some of us took, were we, were we in danger? Were we in spiritual danger? Not necessarily, because Paul begins to unpack what this philosophy that threatened the Colossians, what it looked like. It's a philosophy that he defines by three terms. He says, it's according to human tradition. That's the first one. It's according to the elemental spirits. And it's not according to Christ. Those three form a false teaching that is spiritually hollow. Empty of anything that has spiritual value, though it claims spiritual insight. And in fact, it will lead people away from the truth. And remember, the truth is Christ. All right, so what does this look like? What, what is philosophy according to human tradition? I think it's safe to say that it's legalism. It's legalism. Human tradition in the New Testament, when it's negative, almost always is a kind of legalism. You have to do X, Y, and Z in order to receive favor from God. Or maybe the question is always haunting us, have you done enough in order to please God? Again, this is what we see in the New Testament. Jesus says of the Pharisees, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Elsewhere, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And so this philosophy has a religious legalistic slant. If you want to experience the fullness of Christ, you must add works, but that's empty deceit. Notice this distinction, and this is key. Because you already have the fullness of Christ, already in gratitude and by the Spirit, walk in Him. Do you hear that distinction? In order to experience the fullness of Christ, you must do X, Y, and Z. That's legalism. That's false philosophy. Because you already have the fullness of Christ, therefore in gratitude, walk in that fullness. That's the key distinction. That's the distinction of Colossians. And so this philosophy, again, religious legalistic slant, but secondly, it's, it's not according to the elemental spirits. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's a really hard word to translate. Uh, it's one word, and it can mean a number of different things. It can mean the basic elements of the universe. Think of like water, fire. Uh, it can also mean uh, the spiritual realm, angels and demons. And so what in the world is Paul saying when he's talking about these elemental spirits that pose a threat to the church? Let me give you this suggestion. It's the natural way of the universe apart from the grace of Christ. It's the natural way of the universe apart from the grace of Christ. And I would contend there are a number of different expressions of these elemental spirits that we see all over our world. Probably the most common one would be karma. Karma is an expression of an elemental spirit or elemental principle. It's the idea, right, of, of what you put out into the universe, you will then receive back. Basic idea of karma. I know there can be nuanced, and you can unpack that further, but that would be the idea of an elemental spirit. Tarot cards would be an example. Horoscopes in astrology, trying to determine my life according to the zodiac signs, that is an elemental spirit, or at least one expression of it. 
Now let me give you the most controversial example of an elemental spirit that Paul gives us, especially in Galatians, which is applicable here. The Old Testament ceremonial law. Now what in the world does the Old Testament ceremonial law, like circumcision, the dietary restrictions, the calendar, what does that have to do with with like pagan karma, for instance? How do you tie those two together? Well, one of them is true and revealed from God. The pagan ones were false, but Paul ties them together by saying every impulse for human righteousness and law-keeping finds its fulfillment and finds its end in Christ. One theologian calls the elemental spirits, I think this is wonderful, it's the ABCs of the old world. It's to revert to the old world and to go back into childhood. And so you got this beautiful Schwinn bicycle. You can ride this bike. You love riding the bike. And all of a sudden, the false teachers come to you with these gorgeous training wheels. Gold-plated training wheels. And Paul says, what in the world do you need those for? Well, they're sparkly. I see they're sparkly. But what do you need those training wheels for? You can ride a bike. And in fact, I would argue, Paul would argue, for using my analogy, that training wheels, they, they fundamentally defeat the point of a bicycle. Why would you do this? Why would you do those things if the fullness of deity dwells in Christ and fills you? What do you think you can do? What what are you needing to add to your spiritual life in order to gain the fullness of Jesus? And then most importantly, what does this philosophy have? Well, it's not according to Christ. It misses who Christ is. It misses what he has done. And so what's the antidote? What's the solution? What's the formula Paul gives us? Verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now this is temple language. This is temple language. You know, the temple, or or first the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it answers humanity's, one of of humanity's most pressing questions necessitated by sin. This is not a question that you you asked in the Garden of Eden, but the question is, where is God found? And the temple provided that answer. And then the temple provided the, the second most important question after that first question, which is, okay, I know where God is found. Now, how do I, as a sinful human being, how do I safely meet with this God who is holy? And again, the temple answered that question as well. And both of those answers are found fully answered where? In Jesus. And if Christ is the fullness of God, then those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ, have been brought into this fullness. You are filled in him. To know Christ is to know his benefits. That's what fullness means, is is to experience the riches of the treasury of his grace, your union with him, forgiveness and justification. You are righteous in him, belonging and adoption, security, the hope of glory, everything that you would need and want and desire ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so Paul makes this plea, right? Be rooted, be established, be secure with thanksgiving. Everything you're looking for, human beings, everything that we're looking for, we put it in in so many different terms. They're all relatively valid and all point to this need of God that we have. Everything we're looking for, forgiveness, the covering of our shame, approval, right? Adam was created to hear God's voice of approval. We still have that need too. Meaning, purpose, identity, stability. It's yours in Christ. You are filled in him. Which means what? Conversely, so much of our, of our uprootedness, right? So much of our shakiness, our instability 
is this foolish insistence that we can be filled elsewhere. I think this is where Colossians has to do with this kind of false teaching that none of us can really relate to, and I concede that. I think that's right. And yet, why does Colossians still speak to us? Because we know what it's like to seek fullness anywhere else but Christ. We know what it's like to say, well, do you believe in, in, in Christ? And you say, well, yeah, sure. Do you believe he died for your sins? Yeah, absolutely. Rose from the dead? I'm with you there too. Is, is he reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father? And will he return again? Yes, yes, I, I believe that as well. And yet we also say my life is spent looking for satisfaction elsewhere. And of course we don't find it, and so it starts a cycle of discouragement and bitterness and unhappiness and even unbelief. The threat of philosophy and empty deceit still exists, and this is, this is a powerful reminder, right? And the reminder is that we are full in him. The problem is that we, we believe this with faith that is weak, which leads us to our second point. This is where Paul goes, that you've been sealed in him. And by sealed, I mean you're guaranteed, you're assured, you're vindicated in him. All right, second point, you've been sealed in him. Uh, just about every scholar and commentator sees in this Colossians philosophy, it has a Jewish flavor. Uh, we get this idea from elements we'll see next week with Sabbaths and new moon festivals. And then, of course, Paul moves to this discussion of, of circumcision. Now, why does he go there? Let's first of all understand the question that's being asked in Colossians. And by doing so, I want to compare it with, with Galatians. And I understand everyone in here may not remember what happened in the book of Galatians. So let me just recap it really, really quickly. In Galatians, Paul plants this church. The church believes and then Paul leaves. False teachers soon come in. They're called Judaizers. And they say, yes, in order to be saved, you need to put your faith in Christ, and you also need to keep these boundary marker, identity markers of the Old Testament ceremonial law, which would include most profoundly circumcision, but also the dietary restrictions, also the calendar observances, right? So you have boundary markers plus faith. And Paul sees that, and he says that's not only a distortion of the true gospel, it's not just a perversion, it is something completely different from what I taught you. Now, Colossians has a big distinction from Galatians. First of all, we know that in Colossae, they've not really bought into that message like the Galatian church. So Paul's upset with the Galatian church because they abandoned his message. That's not true in, in Colossae. And then the other big difference here is reading between the lines, I don't think anyone is saying, in order to be saved, you need Jesus plus something else. Here's what they're saying. Yes, you are saved in Christ, but in order to attain super spirituality, in order to attain this kind of, kind of elite spirituality, you need to add certain things like asceticism, kind of rigorous lifestyle. Um, you need to add these Old Testament ceremonial features. In, in order to receive the fullness that you're after, you need to strive for something else. I think this is a relevant danger in any Christian community that says, well, of course you're saved, but you need to strive for that second blessing. You need to strive for that additional fullness. I think Colossians speaks directly to that particular issue, opposed to saying, no, you have the fullness of Christ in your baptism, as we'll see. So that's the background. And this is why Paul goes from, we're talking about the fullness of Christ, and now we're going to talk about circumcision. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
to reinforce that the fullness of Christ is already yours and to drive this point further home, in Christ you have already been circumcised. If you are in Christ, you lack nothing. Everything that circumcision means and pointed to, it already belongs to you and you have it. Now we have a problem in this room that is a golf college. Uh, This is bizarre to us, isn't it? Why in the world does Paul talk about fullness of Christ and then all of a sudden he wants to have this talk about circumcision? There are a couple reasons I can think of why we don't talk about circumcision at the dinner table. Why in the world is Paul so easily going to this idea of, of circumcision? Well, I think it's important. We do have to unpack it a little bit. What was circumcision? It was the sign and seal, right, that guarantee like a divine tattoo that marks out the child and says, you belong to me. It's given to to Abraham and Abraham's descendants as that reminder, that fundamental promise of the covenant, which is I will be your God and you will be my people. Right, that was true in Genesis 12 when God promised that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. He believes it. He's justified. Genesis 15, Abraham still believes it. Genesis 17, Abraham still believes it. But then God says, I'm going to give you this additional sign in order to give you this confirmation to mark you out as belonging to me. Part of the male reproductive organ is cut off as a visible, tangible reminder that you belong to God, that you are the recipients of God's blessings. But in that right, right, that initiatory right of belonging, it's not only blessings that are signified, it's also curses. It mattered that it was a bloody sign. So circumcision, on the one hand, it shows this kind of spiritual, merciful act of of cutting off the filth in our hearts, but it also shows forth the justice of God who will cut off the covenant breaker. And so ultimately, when you think of the sign of circumcision, it's that part of you is cut off in judgment so that the whole of you can receive God's blessing. Does that make sense? Don't visualize it too long, but does that make sense? (laughs) Part of you is cut off in judgment, so that the whole of you can receive the blessings of God. And friends, all of that led to the circumcision of Christ. Because in him, you also were circumcised. This time, not with one made of hands, meaning your heart has been circumcised, which was a long promise of the Old Testament, but by also putting off the body of flesh, meaning your sinful nature, your sinful flesh, it was cut off when Jesus himself was cut off. Circumcision from its inception pointed to Jesus. Where was Jesus' circumcision? Well, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was true, faithful Israel, of course. But no, his circumcision was the cross. It was there that he was completely cut off because of the transgressions of his people. In his bloody death, he underwent the ultimate circumcision. He was cut off so that we might receive a circumcision not made with hands, our hearts regenerated. Now, do you see why Paul's bringing this up? What fullness are you looking for? Why in the world would you go seek to be circumcised? You were already in him. Your body of flesh was already cut off when Christ your Savior was cut off. Now, Paul answers, secondly, a key objection to this, which is, I understand that I am spiritually circumcised. I'm buying that. I'm I'm tracking so far. But don't I also need to be physically circumcised? I mean, think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. All of them were both, weren't they? So don't I need a physical circumcision? And then we have this key verse for Presbyterians, which says, no, because you were baptized. 
Everything that circumcision gave you, spiritually you received it. Yeah, but what about physically? Well, physically, why in the world would you be circumcised? You received everything in your baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Everything circumcision represents you received in baptism. The signs and seals of belonging, the curse of unbelief and judgment, all contained in circumcision, right? Now all contained in baptism. Circumcision, a partial cutting off. Baptism, a a partial sprinkling of judgment. And Christ, of course, underwent the full deluge of judgment in our stead. Circumcision was administered to every male adult convert and his children uh, in, in the old covenant, his sons. It is expanded in the new covenant. It does not contract, but it expands to every male and female in the new covenant. Now, what's the point of all of this? It's not just a theology lesson. I understand that was some, we keep saying heavy lifting because Sunday school was about God's decree. So I'm sure many of your brains are already fried. But what is the point? It's about being rooted and established. Remember your baptism. Remember who you are, that that what we receive is that sprinkler or quick dip in the water, right? Christ received the full judgment of God on our behalf. He was buried in a tomb. And your identity has already been wrapped up into his. And so subjectively, we feel exposed to the elements. And and so what do we do? We go back and we root our hearts in the objective baptismal promises that we receive. Baptism functions as this refuge and and comfort, this concrete reminder that we are our, our identities are so wrapped up in, in Jesus. So wrapped up in him that, that he actually died and, and we're considered dead in him. That he was actually buried in a tomb and we are considered buried with him. That he was actually raised to new life and God has raised us in him and will one day raise us in full in him. And so don't forget the fullness you already have in Christ, the fullness promised to you in your baptisms. Everything in life that offers fullness needs to be measured and relativized and judged according to your baptismal identities. Your job this morning, this afternoon, your job is to ask the question, where do I look for fullness? And how does having God's name placed upon me in my baptism, how does it counteract that? How does it speak to that? Right, all of these voices that we are surrounded with, they're coming out of the, the televisions and, 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 and the internet and everywhere else. They're coming out in society, in our schools, in our workplaces. All of the voices beckoning us with offers of fullness. Right, If you just bought this, you would be full. If you just had this career, you would be full. If you just moved to this place, then you would be full. If you just married a different person, then you'd be full. If this country just got back to this vision of the good life, then I would be full. If I could just pursue my heart's deepest desires, because that is the truest expression of me, then I would be full. And all of those are false voices. All of those voices pale in comparison to the voice we hear in our baptisms where God says over us, I am yours and you are mine. And I promised you this in baptism. 
Christian life in Colossians is, is, is not that it is a journey to fullness. Do you grasp that? The Christian life is not a journey to fullness. It is living out of the fullness that already belongs to you. And the remarkable thing is that fullness belonged to you when you were baptized. Paul doesn't talk about fullness. He talks about maturity, which is growing into that identity that's already yours. Let's wrap up with our third point, which is one more kind of gospel wallop that Paul wants to leave us with in our passage, which is that we're secure in him. Verse 13, we have this emphatic statement of the power of God's saving grace. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we want to stop there just to say, don't forget who you are. Right? This is not the language of the elementary spirits or elementary principles. This is not if you live according to the stars just as you were destined to do. This is not go ahead and do your best and kind of see how that pans out. This is the language of grace. And that's an alien concept to this world. That is not the substance of the fallen creation. That's the voice of heaven speaking grace. Because you weren't spiritually sick. You weren't spiritually weak. You were dead in your trespasses. Writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation, God saw that you were uncircumcised. It didn't freak him out. He wasn't taken aback. He saw you in this state and he saved you. Your salvation is full. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, the record of debt, is, as you can probably just imagine, it's some kind of business ledger, right? We don't know if this existed or not in the ancient world because most of us can kind of put together what's happening here. It's like an IOU, right? It's this itemized bill of sins that create this huge promissory note that we owe to God. Here are all of your sins published, all of your failures, all of your shame, all of the things you should not have done but you did it anyway and all of those things that you didn't do that you should have done. All of that is published. All of that is broadcast for all to see. And these charges, these handwritten record of debts were canceled and wiped away in Jesus. My record of shameful sins, the insurmountable debt that I owe God, it has been canceled. It has been taken from me and put on Jesus and nailed to the cross. I think this idea is, is really powerfully conveyed in the Charles Dickens novel, David Copperfield. You have the main character, David. When he was a little boy, he was called Davy. His father died before he was born, and so he has this real close attachment to his mom. She remarries a Mr. Murdstone who is cruel and abusive to young Davy. At one point, they get into a physical altercation while he's just a young boy, and he bites the hand of Mr. Murdstone and then is savagely beaten, and then he's sent off to a boarding school. And he's given a placard to hang around his neck that reads, Take care of him, he bites. And Dickens writes that Davy now greatly suffered from that placard. He never knew who was reading it. He was forced not to conceal it. And he was jokingly treated like a wild dog among his fellow students. What would your placard read? What would your placard read? Here comes so-and-so, the super judgmental, the lustful, the gossip, the ungrateful, the mean, the selfish, the hypocritical. And Paul says someone has taken that sign, and, and by all rights, you should be wearing that sign. Paul says someone has taken that sign away from you 
and nailed it to his cross. Jesus was exposed on the cross and it was as if above, right, right next to the cruel taunt, here is the king of the Jews, was a placard that read, here, here hangs the judgmental and the lustful and the ungrateful and the gossip and the mean, the selfish and the hypocritical, though he was none of those things. Jesus took your shame and nailed it to the cross and in so doing, he put to open shame the powers that work to keep you from being rooted and established in him, which also includes those very real powers that accuse you, that say, no, that placard is exactly who you are. And Paul says, no, no, my sins are gone, nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities And he put them to open shame like a Roman general marching through a town with the conquered army before him. So Jesus exposes the powers of darkness, the powers of this world as weak, as shams. There's a certain vulnerability and exposure to the elements we feel in this life walking with God. Think of the hurricane imagery. Right, trying to follow and serve Christ. And and, and so Paul secures us one more time with the victory of our God. At the cross, not only was our sinful flesh dealt with, but the the emptiness of what the world offers, the accusations of the enemy, those are also exposed to open shame. They mean nothing in light of the resurrection of our victorious Savior. And so from this reality, from this fullness, walk in him. Be rooted in him, be built up in him, established in the faith. And don't forget the last exhortation, which I passed over, uh, which is abounding in thanksgiving. Doesn't that make sense if the fullness of Christ is already ours? How are we going to live abounding in thanksgiving? The work is over. The sins have been dealt with. The victory is ours. To walk every day in thankfulness to the God who fills us with the fullness of Christ, who promised this fullness to us in our baptisms, and who himself, we're told, has made us alive with him. Let's pray. Father, we are... We are grateful for this word. My prayer is that by your spirit, you would take these words from a page, these words that were spoken in this room, and that you would fill them out into our lives, that you would animate them by your spirit, that they would get into our, our tissue, they would get into our, our, the very core of our hearts, that we would leave this place so built up so encouraged to to be rooted and established in you, to be those who are just oozing with thanksgiving uh, because the fullness is ours. And so, Lord, would you help us to live into that reality? Would you help us to to hear these words uh, and, and, and by your spirit to get them past just our brains and worked out into every part of our being? Lord, that's a work that, that only that you can do. It's a work that so often we don't really believe you can do. So God, would you do this work among us this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.